Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. Ken, we're pretty much through the bank earnings already. It's been quite the mixed result. Talk to us about your overall impression and how much these banks are differentiating one from the other these days. It's a great question. And the gloom and doom from March to, to really the summer seems to be over. So the level of provision for loan loss and reserves seems to have been stabilized. The increases were much, much smaller in the third quarter. But it's really a tale of two stories. We're excited about the capital markets. For the pure plays like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley tomorrow, they're gaining wallet share, and they're also disruptors in the traditional banking area. Uh, For the Main Street-type banks, consumer and commercial, they're facing still uh, risk as it relates to how do you get volume going again for credit card and for consumer lending. Um, And it all seems to be a step function of the COVID-19. Will there be a stimulus bill and will that sprinkle into the economy, you know, more activity? You know, U.S. economy is 70 percent consumer, and that's why Bank of America stocks down today, uh, as well as some pressure yesterday with J.P. Morgan and Citi. How much are these banks chasing investors right now, and how much are they just trying to stabilize themselves until perhaps they can give out dividends again or, you know, earn some money some other way? Well, they, they have a dominant position. So looking at the U.S. banking industry, they are gaining deposits in the asset size. Uh, but they are learning their lessons from the last recession uh, and crisis. You know, credit quality really matters. And they're letting um, a lot of the lower qualified homeowners for, for mortgages or other areas like auto go somewhere else in the shadow bank. You know, so th- this is a quality story. And you know, I think for investors, when you look at these stocks, um, the, the broad bank stocks, the Fed says you can't raise dividends, you can't buy back stock. We're going to tell you where we are at the end of this year. So there's enormous capital being built up, which is why the return on equity ratios and regulatory ratios are so great. So next year, it creates pent-up return of capital to shareholders with an economy that's probably going to be better some point in 2021. All of this means that this is a cheap group. You know, you know, we've got City trading at less than 50% of net tangible book value, which is crazy. We also see that, you know, re- relative to the rest of the financial sector, investors are avoiding banks today. But don't forget what this could look like six to 12 months down the, down the line. And, and that's, I think, this quarter is a pivot from the dark days that we saw since March to trying to figure out what next year will be. Yeah, how much does that depend on stimulus and how soon it comes? I think stimulus is important. So going back to the traditional banks, the consumer bank, which is loans and credit cards, unless we see the stimulus, it's not going to raise consumer confidence levels for those who work, and it's not going to add to relief for those who are on forbearance on paying their credit cards. It's a big problem, 12 million out of work. Uh, I think the question the market is not sure is the election, 
a stimulus bill after the election or in January. This is the wild card. So this is why the bank stocks really aren't moving much uh, this week. You know, Ken, over the years, you've covered them all. You've covered the big banks, you've covered the boutique banks, you've covered the exchanges, you have covered, you know, everything that I can and can think of when it comes to the financial sector. What is standing out to you as the most value right now? What's your, your, your strongest buy, let's say? So in, in our team, so I, I cover just the large banks. Right and now, yeah. Look at the, rest of the, the rest of the team, names like Visa, MasterCard, just beautifully positioned, you know, for that rebound in, in terms of consumer and credit card and their platforms. Um, you know, so I think that's the area. You know, asset management is consolidating. We like Blackstone, and that will continue. You know, Morgan Stanley, I thought it was a great deal. They paid a premium, um, for, but, you know, what they got with uh, Eaton Vance is a great global platform. So we're seeing consolidation in asset management, uh, and that will continue as well. Are the likes of Visa, MasterCard, as you say, they're perfectly positioned for the consumer, but are they under any threat at all from the more fintech type companies out there? It's a good question. So for you and I as consumers, we think of Visa or MasterCard just the credit card in our wallet, but it's not. They really have a clearinghouse platform for transactions, and they really have less risk in terms of some of the startups you know, in the card area. You know, so it's it's a complex business, but where uh, these Visa and MasterCard are situated, is, it's really in a great position. And of course, American Express has some of that with their own private system, um, but you know they have a big travel business, and we know what COVID has done to that. Yeah, for now, that's for sure. Ken, are you dipping at all into these fintechs and and these different payment type companies, and and seeing which of them is likely to survive the longer term? So we are watching them, and, and mostly what we cover are the large incumbents, which are also heavily investing in Actually, technology. Actually, Ken, I'm sorry, we'll have to continue this another day, but an extraordinary conversation with Ken Leon there of CFRA, and we really appreciate his time. Now we want to go to the Economic Club of New York. President Trump is addressing the ECNY. Excited to have with us now leading Labour economist Danny Blanchflower, Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College, former Bank of England policymaker. And really, Danny, there are so many places where we could start. I definitely Hi, want to... Yeah, yeah, have we got an hour and a half? I know, right? <laughs> we, we need to make this extra long. Well, let's get straight to it then, because uh, we'll talk Brexit and Boris Johnson and coronavirus in Britain in a moment. But let's start with stimulus. There is a little bit of head-scratching, I think, as to why House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is holding firm and not accepting the $1.8 trillion. And I want you to explain why it might be better for people who are suffering right now if Nancy Pelosi doesn't accept it, if that's what you believe. Well, I mean, obviously, there there are arguments, strong arguments to suggest that the Republicans should have gone out for a stimulus, especially in areas where their candidates are in trouble, to boost how well people are feeling. Um, Stimulus in this economy is needed because people are struggling. Um, They're furloughed, even if they have jobs. Many of them have less hours than they would like, so they have less spending. And that feeds through to the economy as a whole and has a negative impact on, on, on the economy. So what happened in earlier in the year when the economy tanked, we went into lockdown, 
stimulus came, that prevented things from being a lot worse. Now, obviously, I think everyone's playing political games um, in a sense that um, if checks show up prior to the election, perhaps that will boost the Republicans. So this is, in a sense, these are political games. In terms of for the economy, we need to get stimulus in there. We need to get it in there now, um, especially as we're starting to see slowing down of the economy and the virus spreading. So this is head-scratching stuff. People are playing politics with people's lives, and it's time to go and get busy, as the old phrase said. But Danny, there's stimulus and there's stimulus. And I know that there's an argument yeah. for getting people, you know, cash immediately because there are so many suffering out there. And we'll talk about the labor market in a moment. But is it the right thing to do just to send out, you know, $1,200 once again and maybe give some targeted aid to, you know, airlines or what well, have you? Yeah, yeah, well, targeted aid's an important thing. I mean, I mean, what we know at the moment is that People who are especially struggling need help. I mean, I'm a labor economist. I have never seen this phenomenon, which I've seen in the last month or two, which is all of a sudden wage growth in a recession has gone from 2% to 7%. Well, why is that? Wage growth is rising. Well, actually, the reason is that the bottom 15% or so of the wage distribution has dropped out. So it's like a baseball team's average um, improves because the two worst players drop out. I don't mean to suggest these people are worse, but these are these are people at the low end with low earnings. So, so these folks have dropped out of the wage distribution. They need help for the economy. The great thing about these folks is if you give them money, they spend it, and that has a very positive effect. So, what's happening in the labour market? What's happening to people's consumption is a really big deal. Yeah, down the road, you probably want to ensure that there are airlines out there. I mean, it's a great phrase. You want to ensure the commanding heights of the economy. But I think you're right. We need to target it to people who have limited income. It's not big, and they're not, work, they're not out of work because they're lazy. They're out of work because there isn't demand for, for people. And especially the evidence this week is actually the job losses and the labor force drops have actually disproportionately hit women because, you know, it's in industries that they particularly work in, in restaurants and, and so on. So, so I think this is a really big deal. And, and it's interesting as a labor economist to watch people dithering when they should be acting. That's for sure. And Danny, a story that just came out, and because it's in your wheelhouse most recently, I, I do want to mention it here. We've found out that the number of Americans dying from drug overdoses hit a record in the 12-month period ending March. Seventy, Almost 74,000 drug overdose deaths reported in the 12 months through March. And they increased significantly at the start of the pandemic. And I know that you have yes. written a lot about this. Yes. So obviously, you know, there, there's, I mean, we know, we know this, there's suffering out there. Danny, what happens with the labour market? Let's say that stimulus is stalled for now and right. businesses are left well, to fend. Right. Well, I mean, we've done a lot of work. Um, and Case and Deaton have done all this work on what they call deaths of despair. I've been writing about distress. Well, let's just connect all of this together. The, the deaths of despair and overdose deaths disproportionately occur amongst prime age, less educated whites, well, more, increasingly amongst minorities, but particularly amongst that group. So distress is the, which is the group that's crying out for help. Um, the, the prime age, less educated, particularly if you look who's going to Trump rallies. These folks are, have been left behind and are hurting. And no other country in the world has an opioid ep- epidemic like this. No other country has had this huge... Um, set of prescriptions from doctors of opioids that really haven't worked. And the crucial thing to look back and now at 
is that America has an absolute crisis of pain. So even though these opioids have been prescribed, they don't work. They don't solve pain. So Americans are in pain. One in four visits to a doctor, people report they're in chronic pain. And that's before the COVID virus hit. So there's vulnerable people, vulnerable communities, and we have issues of suicide and overdoses. What are people doing? I mean, we need money to help communities. And what's happened in the last decade with lots of spending cuts in, in, in public spending cuts, we've made communities vulnerable mm. and these folks have nowhere to turn so i think this is really terrible america needs to try and understand this in a state that where where dartmouth is new hampshire is one of these states which has unbelievably high yeah. um, opioid death rates so so this is something i think that the american public needs to be aware of Seventy thousand people dying from opioid overdoses i mean there's others dying from drug overdoses and suicide so so this is a real crisis that we're doing nothing about and a stimulus should focus on that should focus on communities should focus on trying to mm -hmm. help mental health and the idea that you would remove health care for people who are hurting not just physically not just from covid but from from this deep mental health crisis is hard to understand well there's a but lot that's hard question, to understand about see, the current I, environment I, I, Danny, let me yeah. ask you in the just literally 30 seconds that we have left, unfortunately, uh, Boris Johnson, I mean, what's his plan? Does he have one? No, hasn't got a plan. I mean, the cabinet is actually the cabinet of incompetence. They're actually there because they all have views about Brexit, but not, not actually very competent. Um, we're seeing disarray. I mean, even before COVID, I think I said on, to you and many times on Bloomberg, these guys don't know what they're doing, continuously mugged by reality. They're supposed to have a, a plan out there tomorrow. Uh, and the only, I think the only question now is, how big an impact is this going to be? And we had a poll out yesterday, which now says that 58% uh, of, of the Scots want independence. So it's splitting yeah. the community. Ireland's upset. It's just a disaster. Danny, thank you again. We'll have you on again soon to talk more about this. Danny Blanchflower, leading Labour economist, of course, at Dartmouth College professor and former BOE policymaker. Let's get an opinion now on some retail with Sarah Holzak, Newberg Opinion Consumer Columnist. Sarah, we're in the middle of Amazon Prime's festivities, let's put it that way. It started as Prime Day and now it really is Prime Days. So over several days, Amazon gives out deals. How is it going this year? So we don't have any information from Amazon yet on how this, on how it's going, but indications are people are participating in large numbers. Um, some third-party data suggests that uh, the, the hit items so far are Amazon's own items. So uh, it's Echo Dot, Smart Speaker, Fire TV Sticks, and Amazon gift cards. Yeah, no surprise, because those seem to be the products that Amazon pushes all the time. You know, I spend a, a little bit of time every now and then on Amazon's website. And even when you watch a Prime video, the ads in the video are for Amazon products. I guess it's, it's not illegal and why wouldn't Amazon do it? But does it suggest that customers are just being pushed towards certain items that, you know, they're not shopping maybe as discerningly as they would otherwise? I mean, Amazon does certainly give really prominent play to these devices on its homepage, and you can see the reasons why they would do that. It's all part of creating this very sticky ecosystem where consumers have Amazon in all different parts of their lives. So perhaps if you buy a Fire TV stick, you're more likely to watch 
Amazon's video streaming programming, then your Prime membership feels more valuable to you and you're likely to redo it next year and the flywheel kind of keeps going in that way. Um, so that's clearly a, a big reason why Amazon is pushing those products today and will continue to do so throughout the holiday season. It, it doesn't even seem that long ago when analysts were speculating if Amazon would start its own sort of in-house brand, remember? And now suddenly it's all Amazon. The other thing is that many of these products are fulfilled by, do we know what kind of margin Amazon gets on the products that are fulfilled by other merchants? I, I think that some of that is not terribly clear, but I think that, um, you know, marketplace orders are clearly a big part of this as well. Uh, they really tried to make a big push this year in their press release and such, emphasizing that small businesses were going to be, uh, you know, part of Amazon Prime Day and that they were going to try to create certain incentives. I think some sort of like $10 credit or something if you spent with a small business um, on Amazon Prime Day. So uh, trying to uh, make this a rewarding day uh, in some ways for folks who use their fulfillment services and such too. You point out a great insight in today's column, Prime Day is a bigger threat than ever for rivals, and I'd urge everybody to read it, that this year, you know, while we usually see Prime Day in July, this year Amazon is using it as a sort of a a holiday kickoff retail extravaganza. I mean, we're, we're pretty much past back to school, or maybe we're right in the middle of it, but Amazon's certainly trying to take advantage of the calendar this year, too. Yes, they are. And that could have really big implications for its competitors. So uh, estimates are that Amazon is going to have about $6 billion in online sales take place on its website during Prime Day. For context, last year on Black Friday, the entire retail industry saw $7.4 billion in online sales. And in a typical day during the holiday season, the entire retail industry sees about $2.3 billion in online sales. So if Amazon rakes in $6 billion in sales during this period, that certainly would seem to be changing the entire rhythm of the holiday season this year and pulling forward some of those sales that would have happened on marquee days like Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You know, it's particularly uh, sort of... um something to see when you see on the other side of the ocean ASOS which started out a little bit like Amazon it was as seen on screen and it was where you went sort of to get your mail order quick fix of clothing and other items it could face a 25 million pound hit from tariffs in the event of an ODL Brexit so obviously ASOS is not really a competitor to Amazon right now it has other problems to worry about what are the main competitors to Amazon? So Walmart and Target, I think, are the key ones. Both of them have really made major uh, investments in their online infrastructure, expanding their assortment online, and expanding their ability to get things to you quickly. I think that two-day shipping promise uh, used to be Amazon's key differentiator, and now a lot of items they're promising one-day shipping. Walmart and Target are really racing to keep up with that. Um, Also, Walmart and Target are really going big on curbside pickup. Um, which Amazon clearly does not have as many outposts to be able to offer that. And a lot of shoppers really like curbside pickup. Um, they can get the item same day and they uh, in that way can get it more quickly than if they waited for it to come to their doorstep. Uh, so those are the folks that are uh, going to be really trying to uh, duke it out with Amazon this holiday season most directly. Yeah, that data is proving a real eye-opener, the curbside pickup part of things. I, I, you know, Not that I know anything, but I probably would have thought that it wouldn't be as popular as it is. Is, but I guess for all the reasons you said, it is actually more popular than you might expect. Now, will Amazon ever upgrade its 
consumer facing experience I was looking to perhaps buy a gift card on Amazon the other day and honestly it was just it was really difficult to find how to how to do that now maybe I'm just not computer savvy but it does seem that Amazon is not putting much into its consumer experience I completely agree with that, Vani. To me, it's just such a strange thing that Amazon is the online juggernaut that it is and that its website is as hard to sort through as it is. I think what Amazon is really good at is when you know exactly what you want, when you just want to refill the same laundry detergent you always buy or buy the same pack of diapers you always buy, Amazon makes it very easy to run an errand on the Internet. What Amazon is not good at is discovery type purchasing. So when you know you want a dress, but you don't know exactly which one, do you want pink, do you want blue, do you want long, do you want short? It's not very good at that. Um, If you know you want new earrings, but not exactly which ones, it's very, very difficult place for that. And I think they have a lot of work to do to fix that experience. Sarah Holzak, always spot on, our Consumer Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thank you. President Trump speaking to the Economic Club of New York and various economic clubs across the country. And we had questioning from Cindy O'Connell of the Economic Club of Florida, David Rubenstein of D.C. and Mike O'Neill of New York. We have Michael McKee with us now, our chief correspondent for all things economic, both national and international. And Michael, a very serious conversation here. The president putting out some ideas, a couple of inflammatory statements like how a Joe Biden presidency would be a socialist dream, an American nightmare. But at the end, he was asked about things like infrastructure, stimulus, national debt. Did we hear anything new from the president? No, but we haven't been hearing much new from him throughout this campaign. He mostly uh, talks about what happened in the previous three or four years, and he talks a lot about, of course, what happened under the Obama administration. Um, The questions he was asked uh, about infrastructure spending, he didn't answer. uh, he, He said what he always says about many different things, that he has a plan, but there's never any plan. They were coming close to a deal on infrastructure, uh, at least Democrats in the House and the president, when the president got upset with Nancy Pelosi and broke off the talks. And that was two years ago, and nothing's been done on infrastructure since. Uh, The House and Senate have uh, very big differences about how you would pay for infrastructure and how you'd structure the program. Uh, He said today, the wall is one of the biggest infrastructure projects ever. Uh, That's not true. he did shut down the border under the guise of pandemic protection. So that part of uh, what he said about the wall uh, was correct. He was asked about the deficit. And as somebody uh, else says quite often uh, about this, this is one of those um, up is down, down is up Trump statements. He said the deficit was falling and we were going to pay off interest costs and start paying down principal on the deficit before the pandemic hit. That's 100 percent, 180 degrees opposite from what was happening. The deficit was rising significantly before the pandemic because of the tax cuts. So um, it's hard to know exactly what he was trying to do other than insult Joe Biden and uh, and stir, uh, stir up his base. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's probably what we can expect from him as we approach the election. There's only, what, three weeks left and we're going to get, you know, viewers questions, you know, at some point tomorrow night um, and tonight, in fact. Uh, So we will be hearing a lot more from the president on economic matters and so on. But really, nothing moves the needle until we get some more idea of what happens with stimulus. And certainly Nancy Pelosi doesn't look like she's about to uh, give in to, to, to President Trump's request or whatever Republicans are requesting. Not that that's clear. No.
Well, even here's the thing we have to remember that even if the Speaker of the House and the Secretary of the Treasury agree on some kind of deal, it would have to pass the Senate as well as the House. A number of House members have already suggested, House Democrats have suggested they would vote against it because uh, they don't think it's big enough. And the question then becomes how many Republicans would vote for it if it's not considered big enough. Then in the Senate, you don't have 50 senators who approve of it. The Democrats are pretty united against it. And half of the Republican senators say they don't want to spend anything. So at this point, there's a lot of focus on Wall Street about the talks, talks, in quotation marks, between Nancy Pelosi and Steven Mnuchin. But the odds of something actually happening, particularly before Election Day, are very, very small. Yes, and for some reason, and she wasn't quite clear about it yesterday when she was speaking with Wolf Blitzer, Nancy Pelosi is not willing to even consider this $1.8 trillion stimulus. What is it in there, Michael? Can you decipher that she's so against? She was actually quite angry with the two Democrats that said that they should be accepting this. Uh, the part of the play, part of it is the dis- way the money is distributed. Part of it is the amount of money for states and localities is not enough, uh, they believe. And part of it, obviously, is politics. They don't want to give Donald Trump uh, any kind of victory before the election. You remember the last time uh, when the CARES Act was passed and the $1,200 was going out. For those who got it in check form, Trump held up distribution of the checks until he could have his name printed on it. And the last thing Nancy Pelosi wants is for voters to be opening their mail the day before the election and seeing Donald Trump giving them $1,200. Yes, that is true, I'm sure. And also, um, presumably, that machine is up and running now, so there may not be so much of a delay this time around. But there is an argument to suggest that people need cash now, no matter how it comes and no matter who gets the credit, right, Michael? We had Danny Blanchflower on earlier saying this country is in trouble. Uh, There is, uh, particularly because more people are losing their jobs now as we're finding more companies go out of business. And the airlines are a perfect example, not going out of business, but laying off tens of thousands of people because they don't have any business to do at this point. And that was one of the hopes of the stimulus bills, that they could get aid to the airlines in the uh, short term. Uh, But another interesting statistic came out from the New York Fed yesterday. Of the people who got the stimulus checks the first time around, average of about $2,400 each, 71% either saved the money or paid down debt. And they have money in the bank. And so if this rebound continued to go faster than expected, we might have a tailwind and we might need less of the stimulus checks. I think the the biggest difference now is that there are going to be people who uh, didn't save or don't have the money who are losing jobs permanently who may need something. Yeah, I found that phenomenal as well when you consider just how many people are at food banks and food lines as well who were once, you know, happily employed or all of the people around Orlando that are living in motels because they lost their job at Disney, for example, and and have to move every two weeks. Otherwise, they risk, you know... uh, being a problem for the ho- the motel owner because after two weeks you can't you know get evicted normally you have to go through the the court process I mean there are an array of stories out there about people suffering Michael what should we be concentrating on over the next couple of days it's, it feels like Joe Biden needs to get more of an economic message out there actually uh, Biden probably needs to publicize it uh, Joe Biden if you look on their website uh, has a very extensive economic plan that. Uh, involves taxes, infrastructure, um, 
various uh, pandemic recovery uh, ideas. And Donald Trump, um, and I'm not saying this to be partisan, Donald Trump has nothing. If you go to his website, there are literally no proposals for a second term. And so it's kind of hard to know uh, what he would do. And Biden perhaps wants to make that case a little bit more. Donald Trump uh, talked today about um, Biden plans, but if you noticed in his speech, he didn't say what he would do. He talked a lot about how bad the Biden and the Democrats are. And that's one of the problems people have suggested uh, that we're seeing with Trump's poll numbers is that at this point, he is uh, talking about the previous four years. And a lot of people didn't like what happened in the previous four years outside of the tax cut. And he's not talking about what happens in the next four years or even in the next year. And, and that makes it hard to make a case for your reelection. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a phenomenal time, and and you know a lot of people are pointing out now that if we don't get something before the election, it's going to be January before we're even able to do more stimulus. Michael, thank you. We really appreciate your input and listening to that for us. That's Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.